0: Welcome to Musicians versus the World, the podcast where we explore aspects of music and musician life that may not have been covered in music school. I am your host, Christine Smith. Over the course of this podcast, we have discussed things we can do as musicians to keep ourselves mentally, emotionally, and physically healthy. Now today, we're going to expand on that topic by discussing what happens when unexpected health events disrupt our lives, our music-making, And our careers. This is a subject of nightmares for musicians, so we don't like talking about it very much. But because we do not talk about it, this can cause feelings of isolation and hopelessness for musicians who are actually dealing with these challenges. Fortunately, there are wonderful musicians like my guest today, trombonist Bradley White, who are willing to tell their story and bring attention to health and injury problems in the music world. This is a subject that is very, very close to my heart, so I'm grateful that Brad has agreed to share his story with us today. Bradley White joined the Houston Symphony in the fall of 2001 as Associate Principal and Second Trombone. He is a native Houstonian and earned his Bachelor of Music in Trombone Performance from Rice University's Shepherd School of Music in 1993. He went on to study at the Manhattan School of Music in New York City, where he received a Master of Music in 1997. White has performed with Ambient Brass, the Houston Ballet and Grand Opera Orchestras, and the San Antonio and Hawaii Symphonies. He currently lives in Houston with his family, where he enjoys antique shopping, skiing, and watching South Park and horror movies with his twin 16-year-old daughters. So Brad, thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Musicians vs. the World.
1: <laughs> thank you. I should have added Atlanta and Fort Worth on there as well.
0: Oh, were you? <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey. I, I just realized this, there are some other orchestras I've played with.
0: We're big fans of Atlanta. <laughs> we go to see the Atlanta Symphony often. We love that place.
1: Oh, yeah, it's great. I have some great friends there. It's a fantastic orchestra.
0: Yeah, so what was it about music that made you want to work in an orchestra and make music your life?
1: Um, it really does go all the way back to... You know, the old cartoons, especially the Tom and Jerry cartoons, not, not the newer ones, the ones that came out in the 70s, but the ones that came out in the 50s.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm forgetting who produced those, but they used a lot of great music, great classical yeah. music, great jazz, just a lot of great music. And uh, I didn't realize it at the time, but there was one uh, cartoon called The, the Hollywood Bowl. And, and of course, it had to do with Tom conducting. And then, of course, Jerry was messing with everything. But they were playing a lot of great music. And I remember my favorite parts were actually the trombones. I didn't realize it was the trombones until literally decades later, once I had my job, (laughs) uh, playing some of the same music, some of the Strauss waltzes and such. Yeah. And also um, watching that movie Amadeus. Mm, Yeah. His Requiem has some Mm. beautiful moments for trombone and it's illustrated quite well in the movie, actually, when he was singing to Salieri and and he's writing it down and and the, the solos and uh, were played by the trombone as he was singing. And uh, it just sounded absolutely beautiful. And that, that actually was the moment when I decided, okay, yes, I want to, I want to do this forever. But when I decided to go into band in Texas, band is a really big deal. You've probably yes. heard that before. yeah. And uh, you know, it was considered to be really cool. And, and I could have chosen clarinet or trombone. And for whatever reason, I was just drawn to the sound of trombone. But yeah. I didn't realize that that went back even to those old cartoons when I was a little, little kid. I didn't realize that until much, much later. But, uh, but I loved it. I mean, when I started playing, I was somewhat obsessed. I was just practicing all the time. If we went on some sort of family vacation, I would bring my instrument with me. This was the days before we really cared about seat belt belts very much. So I remember even practicing in the car while we were driving, like sitting really? in the backseat and just kind of trying to get room for my slide and practicing. And thinking nothing of what a disaster it would have been if we had actually gotten in a car accident.
0: <laughs> I don't and, even know how you fit it. You must have had a pretty big car.
1: Uh, it was like one of those big Oldsmobiles. Those cars were pretty big. But yeah. I would just sit up kind of in one corner and sort of towards the driver's uh, <laughs> chair. And then even in school, and I'm surprised I didn't I didn't get beat up for this, but I would be buzzing down the hallways, just sort of buzzing <laughs> tunes walking around the hall. I mean, I was, I was very obsessed. I really loved it. And if I had friends that were also in band, I couldn't quite figure out why they weren't as obsessed as I was. Yeah. Um, that's how I was. So. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The trombones definitely have a, a beautiful and strong sound. Um, now I know in a marching band, it has one role, but what's the trombones role in the grand scheme of orchestras?
1: You know, depending on... And, and I know a lot of this just because our principal Tyrone was asked this same question, but in earlier music like Beethoven or, or Mozart, we, we really weren't using the orchestra very much at all,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we were viewed more in a sacred light because our instrument, the tessitura, it's more like the human voice. Mm. And so sometimes uh, composers would bring us in late in a piece because the, they, thought of us as, as being sacred and uh, sometimes even the voice of angels. Beethoven is known for this. Uh, Brahms would do this uh, where they would, they would save us to the last movement because they just thought we brought something special. And that was, (laughs) you know, before we sort of had a reputation for being a bit ruckus or maybe playing too loud. I think the instruments, not, I don't think, I know the instruments were smaller. Then, oh. and uh, as time went on, uh, especially with Strauss and some of these bigger works, Mahler, the instruments mm-hmm. got bigger. Yeah, and then trombones started getting to where they really enjoyed playing really, really, really loud. But that really wasn't our place for for a really long time. Now we just we have so many different things that we can do. Whether it's it's jazz, we're actually doing Mozart's Requiem this year, and. I still absolutely love that piece. I mean, the oh, sound, yeah. we support the choir. We're, like I said, we more like the human voice, and it's just so beautiful the way Mozart uses us. Same with Beethoven. I mean, it's kind of tricky to sit there for a really long time and then all of a sudden play some really difficult passages. That's, oh, I bet. That's, that's kind of our, our life. Uh, you know, the horns and the trumpets, they're just playing solos all the time just they're in the spotlight all the time but we have the unique challenge of sitting there and then sometimes having to come in pretty cold on some really difficult passages Brahms one is a, is a case of that I don't know if, if you know that chorale in the last moment mm,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but we're, we're playing that after having sat there for three movements and then, <laughs> and then we and then we play a few notes and then we play that really difficult chorale so it That chorale actually scares a lot of principal trombonists.
0: Oh, I can imagine.
1: Yeah. I just do it on alto trombone. It's a lot easier. And actually, it has a really nice, sort of clear, beautiful sound. So,
0: I'm sure you play some more modern or living composers. Is there anything that makes you really excited when you look at a score? Just you can't wait to play it?
1: I would say just having us play.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Just use us.
1: (laughs) Yes, exactly. Because... Truly, the, the, the trumpets and the horns are used constantly. They, they really are. And a lot of times we end up sitting around. Part of that is because we have a slide and they have vowels. And most composers think that we can't play the same technical things, that maybe we have a bit more trouble. But that's not really true. I mean, I just love it when they, when they use us. And that's what makes me excited. And even and, and especially if it's something even really technical, but then it's also got some lyrical things in there. Uh, That's great. You know, so we're not sitting around. That's that's my favorite part is just not sitting. (laughs) Get tired of counting
0: measures after a while, I'm sure.
1: Like actually play. Yeah. And don't overuse glisses. Yes, we can do it, but.
0: (laughs) But That's not all you can do.
1: (laughs) Yes, it's not all we can do.
0: I would love to hear your story about Bell's palsy and how this completely changed everything in your career for a while. Would you mind just jumping in and telling us everything about that?
1: Yeah i I had never heard of it before, but I remember. I still remember something like that happens very, very quickly. And I, I remember for me, my whole life, um, you know, we all have strengths and weaknesses. And one of my strengths has always been a strength is high register. That's always just been something I didn't really have to practice very much. It just worked. And I remember um, I had an earache or what I thought was an earache. My ear was really hurting. I even went to the doctor and they said, you have an ear infection. Uh, Here's some antibiotics. And. I remember just a few days later, just thinking that my trombone playing felt a little strange. I, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but, you know, play, playing up high was just, you know, maybe slightly harder than usual. we were doing a Brahms 4 and a beautiful chorale in the last movement. And uh, I remember I was also playing a quintet gig, and after the rehearsal on Friday that's when I really started to notice that my high register just wasn't working. And so for the first time in a really long time, I remember devoting the whole practice session just to high register. Yeah. And, but you know, I got through the, I got through the show that night, it was fine, but it was Saturday where I went to the show that night, the Saturday night show. And I remember warming up and trying to buzz and I, I just I couldn't even buzz an octave without there just being breaks all in the sound. Normally you should be able to just sort of buzz up and down almost like a you know, like a slide whistle. There's no breaks. You're mm-hmm. just sliding up and down the the registers. And it just it just wasn't working at all. Okay. And it was so bad I, I told Alan, I said, Hey, um, when we get to that chorale in the last moment, and I'm just sounds like I'm being a complete idiot. Just ignore me, but something's going on, and I don't know what it is. So for the first three movements, we just sit there because we don't play, and I noticed that my right eye was starting to not shut, like my left eye. And so I was trying to decide, am I having a stroke on stage? Like oh my goodness. Should I leave the stage? Yeah. Like, or should I not? And and of course you know, you just, you don't know what to do. So you just, you do nothing. But I, I was experimenting with shutting my eye and I was like, okay, yeah, I can shut my left eye. I can shut it really tightly. And my right eye, I can't. It's like, I can just wow. barely, I can barely shut it, but that's it. So three movements of that, you know, just, okay. I wonder what's going to happen when I pick up my trombone. So- okay. When I picked up the trombone for the last moment, it was so bad. Something was so wrong that I remember I immediately moved my mouthpiece to the left side to try to make it work. Right. And luckily, luckily, we get to play a few notes before that big chorale that we have. Yeah. But I played that whole chorale just kind of on the left side on a completely different embouchure. And every note was just. Just really trying to figure it out in the moment. I was just trying to get the wow. notes. Wow. So on the way home, I called a, a friend and he said, uh, That sounds like a, a Bell's palsy. You should go to the emergency room right now. So I went to the emergency room and as soon as I walked up to the triage nurse, she looked up at me. She says, Okay, you're having a Bell's palsy. It was already that bad.
0: Wow. Just looking at you. Yeah.
1: Yes. It was just happening so fast and they gave me steroids and antivirals, all the good stuff. And I didn't, I didn't try to play that night, but I did come home and, you know, I woke up my wife and I said, I think something really bad is happening. And then the next time I tried to play the trombone, nothing came out. I could not produce a single note. So I went to, where it was completely paralyzed, so this side of my face was completely paralyzed, which means you can't blink your eye at all. Hmm. So that that's that becomes dangerous because you right. really do need to keep moisturizing your cornea. If it dries out, you go blind in that eye. Need a corneal transplant. So right away, I was given something called Lacquer lube, which is basically the you know thick uh, neosporin is right. Yeah. So if you just think of putting Neosporin in your eye, that's, that's what I had to do. And it stayed that way for three months.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: And, and when I say three months, I don't mean at the end of three months, it was kind of back to normal. I mean, at three months, it was the first time that there was this tiny little twitch, which meant the lights were starting to kind of come back on. So it was it was a hundred percent paralyzed wow. for three months, which means I was effectively blind in that eye for three months as well because I had to keep it, that ointment in there.
0: So that whole side of your face was just completely. Par- is that what Bell's palsy is? It's paralysis.
1: Y- yes, a palsy, I guess, is um, basically just d- yeah damage to a nerve.
0: Oh, okay. it doesn't
1: necessarily have to be paralyzed, but it's it's damage to the nerve. I don't know if, how significant it has to be, but it's what happened though is that you know just about everybody has the cold sore virus yeah. and so what happens is sometimes the oral cavity here goes all the way up to your ear and so that that virus can get up to that up to your ear and when i was feeling that pain what i thought was an earache it was an attack by that virus and the 7th facial nerve travels through a tiny little opening in bone right there and so it's close enough to all the sinuses and the sinus cavities that it can travel and get to that nerve and attack it. Wow. So that's what was happening. And then of course, if that bone opening was really big, it, it probably wouldn't have been a problem. But what happens is it starts swelling up and then the bone won't let it swell beyond a certain point. So then it starts damaging itself. Yeah. And, uh, and sometimes it even gets to your brain. So I remember anybody who's gone through this, they've, they've had a brain scan just to make sure it's, it's not headed to your brain. Although like with a lot of scans, I'm not sure why they do that because there's nothing they, they would do differently other than give you steroids and antivirals that can't. Oh, okay. You, you know, I, I don't think they actually ever take uh, a part of your skull off or something, but if it does get to your brain uh, it can do some pretty serious damage where really? it changes your personality. It affects your memory. Um, it can get pretty serious pretty fast, but luckily it was just the, it was just the, the ear and the paralysis. But what is typical though, and I was told this right from the beginning is that usually people fully recover within about two weeks. Oh, okay. And, uh, and so, you know, Oh yeah, you'll be playing and, you know, Two weeks at the most, really. So when I was still paralyzed after three months, I wasn't quite sure what to think other than right. I knew this was a really bad case. Yeah. And uh, and I still couldn't play the instrument, or really do anything. And it was about eight months before I started playing.
0: Eight months.
1: Yeah. about, And that's when I at that point, it's like I could I could play, but it was still so messed up that I, th- I sort of made this calculated decision about should I basically relearn on a face that's still healing and still really messed up or should I wait for it to heal more? And I think at, at eight months, I just sort of figured out or decided um, it's not healing anymore. It's probably about as good as it's going to get. So that's why I started playing at eight months and then it was about thirteen months total, a little bit over a year before I decided to go back to the orchestra. Uh, but my my return was very ill timed, I would say, because I returned on a really difficult piece uh, oh. for the for the trombones, and that was really stupid. Oh, because it was probably one of the most terrifying moments of my life, playing wise. I mean, everybody knows this. You know, everything's easier in your practice room, and you're completely right. relaxed. But what was amazing was that in a performance type situation, even just having the slightest bit of nerves where I just couldn't fully focus on how to play the instrument, I just completely forgot how to play the instrument. Like, I, I didn't know what note was even going to come out of the instrument.
0: Well, I mean, that's understandable.
1: Yeah, I did have to completely relearn how to play. Because nothing that I did before worked. Nothing was really natural. High register kind of worked, but I was so weak on this side that for the first time in my life, endurance was a real issue mm. and range was was actually an issue as well in a way that, that it wasn't before. Yeah, it, I probably should have waited quite a few more months, but the first couple of months were basically terrifying. And sort of just felt like survival, oh, and yeah. uh, and that, <laughs> I it sounds terrible to say this, but I mean that lasted years. Really, it was really years. I remember thinking, four years on, that finally, I was starting to feel like I was kind of getting control over it, and it wasn't, and every concert wasn't terrifying. Wow, because that's. That's kind of how it felt for a really long time. It's just like, okay, how am I going to survive this week? And of course, I was not taking any outside gigs. I wasn't doing anything extra. Everything was just about surviving the week. And as long as I was really smart about it, you know, I was getting by okay. There was just certain things that were particularly troublesome. I could tell that this side was very, still, even after a year or two, was really weak and then that's when I started uh, doing exercises just for this side of my face just kind of flexing that side and doing uh, multiple sets every day and I remember after about three months finally I was able to hit some high notes that I hadn't hit in years uh, because of the Bell's Palsy. The one thing I noticed too and Really, only my family and close friends notice this. It's a big deal for a lot of people who aren't musicians. It's just that you look different. You look yeah, deformed. And, and whenever I see, even to this day, when I see pictures of myself, I look deformed still. I don't feel like I look how I'm supposed to look. And uh oh even now? Even yeah. oh even now. Yeah, even now. Oh
0: okay.
1: I, I I don't look right now. People who just meet me, they think, oh you look fine. What yeah. like no, this side of my face is not nearly uh as symmetrical to this side
0: hmm. as it
1: used to be. And it's super obvious to me. The other thing too is the right side of my face is basically the the canary in the coal mine that lets everyone know that I'm tired. So I have to be really good about getting sleep, especially for trombone playing. I mean, I just have to, I have to drink coffee and sleep is so essential that, you know, I will cancel things if I need to sleep, because if I don't, this side of my face starts sagging and gets real weak and you can see it. So I just, so I just have this little, you know, this tell that, you know, everyone knows I'm really, really tired.
0: So it's still kind of affecting your life. Now you, yeah,
1: no. even even now. So I have to, and I've learned how to manage it. I mean, luckily, our job allows us to sleep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but yeah, if I didn't take care of that, it would be a problem.
0: Now, at this point of the story, we as musicians would really, really love to expect that happy fairy tale ending. It would sound something like. Once all those exercises began, I was all better, able to go back to work, and we all lived happily ever after. But as we all know, life hardly ever goes according to plan. And in this following section, Brad tells us another major setback that came about a few years later, and the creative workaround he has come up with so that he can continue his musical career.
1: Uh, About a year after... um I returned to the orchestra, maybe, maybe a year and a half. uh, We were on tour playing uh, the planets by Holst. Mm -hmm. Um, And I noticed that while I was playing, a lot of times it'd be higher, sort of a little bit more muscularly uh, intensive. This sign started doing, and and I'm still not quite sure how to describe it, but it was basically like a muscle spasm where it would sort of twist Mm -hmm. And for about, you know, two or three seconds, I could not play. Like I just did not have control over what I was doing. And it was, and it was unpredictable. And we had a tour doctor and I remember I was describing, describing it to the tour doctor and explained the whole history. And he didn't quite know what to make of it other than to say, well, why don't you try drinking Gatorade? Gatorade has electrolytes and, maybe your muscles are getting a little tired. And, uh, and that actually helped Gatorade actually helped. Hmm. And so that sort of got me through the rest of the tour. But then I started um, noticing that it was coming back at the end of seasons, because we have a pretty heavy season that we do. Mm -hmm. And I started noticing that it was coming back around April and in May, and there was one time where it, it was just happening constantly and I couldn't get control of it, that I went out on on disability again. Mm. And uh, I actually didn't play for about six months, thinking, well, maybe it's just fatigued in some way. So I, I was off the horn for about six months, and then I picked up the horn and it immediately started doing it again. And so it was one of those moments where I thought, well, I mean, am I done? And uh, and I said, well, why don't I just try something completely crazy? Because the way I'd always played, this is a little bit technical, but the way I always played was I used a lot of my top lip and uh, I didn't anchor quite so much on the bottom. And it's just always the way I played. So I decided to just kind of reverse everything uh, Mm -hmm. because where the, where it was happening was this top lip on the right side. Mm
0: -hmm. So I tried to
1: really stick my bottom jaw out and just, just offload everything to the bottom part of my jaw. And that worked actually. Hmm. And uh, the, the spasming went away almost completely within a day. And so I thought, okay, uh, you know, I can come back to work, but I had to, constantly remind myself about the new way of playing offload everything down here and so that got me through years you know there's years where that worked if yeah but, but then finally and maybe this this was about maybe two or three years ago here we are about 13 years on because this first happened in 2009 mm. it, it came back and no matter what I did offloading anything I tried, nothing really seemed to work. Um, So I, so I get to this point where nothing is working and I'm wondering, you know, well, I mean, maybe I do have some sort of dystonia. And so in the brass world, there's not a ton of research on dystonia, but in the string world there is. Mm -hmm. And so I was doing uh, some research there and they said, a lot of people said, well, it's a brain mapping issue. And so what string players would do is they would, put a glove on their hand so that it felt different. And that helped, uh, string players. Um, I don't know if, uh, maybe pianists have tried it too. I don't know. But, um, and I remember telling a a friend about this uh, who plays in New York and he said, we actually do have a few string players that play with gloves on their hands. And he's like, I didn't know why. So I thought, well, how can I do that? (laughs) Uh, simulate (laughs) that. So I decided to put tape on my face. Really? Yeah, just tape like right here, and it fixed it almost immediately. Still not completely sure. I so what I'm sort of leaving out of this story is I cannot tell you how many doctors I went to, whether it was uh, plastic surgeons that knew a lot about facial muscles, or uh, neurologists that have specialties in dystonias and brass playing and embouchures and they all just did not know what was going on. And they would say that they would say, we don't know because you're such an unusual case. That's what they would say. They would say somebody who has a case, this severe, they just stop playing and they go do something else.
0: Mm.
1: You know, maybe you should do something else, (laughs) but the tape worked. And so now even to this day, 90% of the time when I practice, I put this tape on and uh, it keeps it it away yeah i haven't had any problems with it spasming or anything for i want to say two two and a half years now and i have done way more i mean i told you i was on survival mode for uh, what feels like the last 10 last 10 years but in the last year and a half i've been actually acting principal because our principal retired Mm. And not only have I done that without getting any spasms or getting in any trouble, I think I've performed something like 10 or 11 recitals. Really? I was just trying to really push myself. So my face has really held up to a lot um, because of figuring out this tape thing.
0: What was going through your head as you like try this okay I'll just try putting tape on my face and it works that must have just been so mind-boggling
1: it, yeah it felt sort of crazy I'm like I mean because and it was duct tape too which that was fun pulling oh. off. <laughs> <laughs> so I stopped using duct tape after a few days yeah, but, I, yeah. But I just I, I don't know I just sort of I just like well it can't hurt I mean I, w- I was very determined to not actually admit, okay, it, it's over. Okay. So, so as long as there was something new to try
0: and oh, I yeah. still don't even
1: know what it's doing. I don't know. I mean, it's, if it's vocal dystonia, it's because there's a different sensation or it could be that it's like how athletic tape is normally used, which is right. it just helps support the muscles mm-hmm. or maybe it's helping to encourage me to use the bigger muscle groups. And just take a little bit of strain off of the small muscles. I know it works.
0: Yeah. So you go with it because it's working. Yeah. So what was it that kept you going? I mean, we're 13 years on and you're still discovering things that work for you. Was there ever a point where you thought, you said that there was a point where you were questioning it, but was there ever a point where you were like wanting to give up and just changing careers at all?
1: No, no. There, were, there was only one point where I thought I might be forced, mm. but it was exactly that. I was, I was going to have to just absolutely be forced.
0: Mm-hmm. And the only way
1: that I would be forced is if I were fired. Because winning a new job is extremely difficult, e- even if you're fully healthy and yeah. firing on all cylinders, winning a job is extremely difficult. There's just... And I, I yeah. remember when one of the times that I did go out on disability, I was out for six months, and I had a neighbor that worked at NASA, and he said, "I can get you a job at NASA." And I was like, "No, no, nope, <laughs> I'm not doing that." I'm like, "I will figure this out. I need time to figure this out. I don't want to be learning another job." Mm. Uh, so, so no, not really.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's inspiring in and of itself. So you feel like you've been supported with your with your job and symphony and your fellow trombonists?
1: Yeah. I mean, management, especially, they were fantastic. You know, it's funny for musicians, it's kind of an odd thing because for somebody that's in management, it's not, it's not a nightmare to see what was happening to me, because if they got Bill's palsy, it wouldn't, it wouldn't like in their career or in their job or anything. But for other musicians, even just seeing me, it was really hard for them. Mm. I remember right. I actually came to a concert maybe a month or two into it. And of course, I looked very deformed. This face was sagging. It was paralyzed. And I remember one of the brass players looked at my face and he goes, I, I, I can't look at you. And he literally looked down and he covered his face. Really? Yes. He said, I, and he didn't mean it insulting like it it just got him he just could not look at me the thought of that happening to him just seemed unimaginable because just even a little bit of nerve damage scares win players but just just to see how completely gone this side of my face was it it completely freaked him out
0: right
1: so what was strange and you know and I didn't I didn't totally blame them, but I think the thought of what had happened and they had no idea what to say, Right. that um, no one in the section actually called. Matter of fact, only one brass player called me in that over a year unsolicited. One did call. Um, There was one guy that I was sort of talking to, but a lot of times I was calling him, I sort of realized the people that were actually calling me were the string players because Mm -hmm. the string players um, sort of understood those kinds of things a little bit better. They had seen it more and knew that it was important to call. Mm -hmm. And so that was really kind of, so I've always kind of been able to tell people uh, this has happened to other musicians where they've gone out and they've been gone And I would call them and they would say, yeah, nobody's really called. And I'm like, because it's just an uncomfortable subject. Nobody wants to talk about it. Right. And so you end up being really isolated (laughs) during (laughs) a time when you don't want to be isolated, but it just, it's just the nature of the beast. It's, it's kind of what happens. I remember when I came back, like our principal, uh, he actually apologized because he knew he knew what he did was bad but he just didn't it was too he, hard he didn't it was too hard he didn't know what to say he's not uh, very emotional that way and and uh kind of kind of tough sort of um exterior and he just didn't know what to say
0: what should we do if we have a colleague or a friend or a family member going through something like you've gone through something so long lasting <laughs> You it's, know, the recovery is that last long lasting. What's the best way we can support them? It's
1: just great to just call and say, hey, how are you doing? That That's really it. Yeah. I mean, it's like we have, I have a colleague right now that's going through cancer mm. and uh, it's been pretty tough. She's been out of the orchestra for a while and I just call her every once in a while. Hey, how are you doing? And uh, usually, you know, she feels absolutely terrible, but, you know, yeah. it's, it's just nice to get a call just to kind of see how you're doing. Even if you only talk five, 10 minutes, Mm -hmm. um, it's just nice to get a call. You don't have to know what to say or you don't have to understand or or anything. Just call saying, Hey, how how are you doing? You know, Mm -hmm. we miss you up at work, but I think that's what prevents people from calling is that just, it's just really uncomfortable and they don't know what to say. So they don't say anything. Yeah.
0: Yeah it's just more of the fact that you care and are reaching it out really that,
1: that, that's it yes when the string players call they're like you know uh, hey how are you doing or maybe you know somebody would crack a joke or whatever and just hey, you know miss you and you know how are you doing like what's going on and so you tell your story and it's just um it's just nice you know mm-hmm. just to kind of just to hear from somebody because yeah. you do you do sort of feel forgotten And it happens. It's it's not just me. It's extremely common. So many people have have said it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember when I was out for a while, a lot of people wouldn't call or when they called, they only called because they had read something they thought would fix me, you know? And so (laughs) there was a lot of unsolicited advice that was complete ridiculousness, but, um, but you know, you appreciate them caring,
1: that's for sure. Yeah, and you know, that's yeah, that's probably part of the problem. They feel like, well, if I can't solve this, then I might as well not call. But that's that's not true. You just right. just calling to see how you're doing and and talk even talking about something mundane is, is nice. So mm-hmm.
0: So what advice do you have for anyone who is possibly going through nerve damage or bell's palsy or some sort of health injury?
1: They are very different. You know, mine isn't a muscle thing, but I have noticed uh, one thing I have run across uh, quite a few times are people just having injuries,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, some sort of muscle tear. And I'm amazed. Actually, you, you had one of these friends on your your podcast.
0: Yeah, we had Colin on, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah.
1: Yeah, when he first got injured, he, he described to me what happened like that day I think he's also the one by the way that said I needed to go to the ER oh, um, uh-huh. but I, I remember when he was describing what happened I said Colin stop playing right now like don't play mm-hmm. another note and he didn't he didn't listen to me because he did not nobody wants to believe that something really horrible has happened to them right no they they just want to kind of pretend it hasn't happened right. and colin was not unique in that way i, I had seen i've seen it now a number of times you know i'm that person <laughs> who kind of steps in and says you need to stop playing and figure out what's going on and, and a lot of times when you do that the person is really not ready to hear it they might even get a little bit mad but yeah. uh, but but i've had it to where months later Maybe even six months later, they came back and said, thank you for talking to me. I wasn't ready to hear it when you said it, but you were right. And they mm-hmm. had to stop playing, let things heal, and then come back uh, in a very different way. And usually what you have to do, one thing that I do have in common uh, with people end up with some sort of muscle tear is that you need to change something And a lot of times, um, just playing much more efficiently is kind of, kind of the number one goal, whether you're just a little bit weaker or you want to make sure that you don't get injured again, playing more efficiently really needs to be kind of number one on the list. And, um, and really close to that is sleep. Sleep is really Mm -hmm. important. It's, it's where you heal. And so you need to sleep, you know, so those, those are two really big things for people who have gone through something like this. And a matter of fact, even just yesterday, somebody um, was telling me that, because uh, we're starting to do these movies more in orchestras mm-hmm. when we play along. Yeah. It's brutal because that's not how they actually did it. They, they didn't play right. in real time of the movie. And usually they had two people in every part and they got breaks. But actually playing in real time to these movies, it's re- it can be really brutal. And people mm. can get hurt. Uh, there's an orchestra right now, not an orchestra, where where the first trumpet player got hurt, but was still trying to play. Because mm. it's so common. They're just like, they because just... it's hard to tell everybody, you're injured, management, I'm injured, I got to go home. But the people around him, they're familiar with injuries and they knew. And so they said, you need to stop playing. You need to go home. We're fine. We'll we'll find somebody. We'll get through it. Yeah, and uh, you know that's that's one thing is just being. It's kind of hard to say be self aware because when it does happen to you, it's usually really confusing and you're not sure that it's actually happening to you. Yeah, but it is good to be self aware. You shouldn't feel sharp pains. You know, if you start right. feeling really sharp pains or you, or you feel like something sort of gave out or something weird like that, you need to stop and reassess. Yeah. In the case of somebody like me with Bell's palsy, you have to learn to reduce stress in your life because mm-hmm. once once you've had a Bell's palsy, you are at a increased risk of getting it again.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, I do take antivirals and I try to not be as stressed, but boy, that's really hard. Um, cause life is just really stressful, but really? sleep, sleep. I do manage to yeah. take care of and, uh, and to, and to be patient. Um, that year that I was out was definitely emotionally really tough. Um, but having the kids was really helpful because it really gave me something to sort of focus on
0: Yeah
1: for, for the year. And, I was with them all the time and I didn't, I didn't need to practice because <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> couldn't. I sort of think of it as a good year from that perspective. It's just spending yeah. so much time with them and getting to know them really, really well.
0: I love that. I thank you for that. I think rest and lowering stress. And I love how you found the joy even in that year when you couldn't be playing. You found that joy in your family and in your girls. I just, I love that. And I love your whole story. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's so important for us to hear your story because I think it is common. Like you said, injuries are common. And the more we hear about other people's experiences, the more we are, the more tools we have when when things ultimately end up happening to us. So I appreciate you doing this and sharing your story with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today on the Musicians vs. the World podcast in our discussion with Bradley White. I hope that as you have listened to Brad's story, you have felt some support and some inspiration. As much as we musicians hate to talk about it, illness can happen to anyone. And for me, it was amazing to hear of a fellow musician that faced his struggles and continued to find a way to do what he wanted to do and continue his musical career. Perhaps you are dealing with an illness or an injury yourself, and you're feeling isolated. If so, I hope this episode has helped you to feel a little less alone. And if you know someone that is dealing with something that is keeping them away from music, make sure to give them a call. I will have links to some more information on the topics we've discussed in our show notes on our website, frostedlens.com slash musicians versus the world. Throughout this episode, you've heard excerpts from Sonata for Trombone and Piano, Movement 1, Allegro Maestoso, by Eric Iwazen and Concerto for Alto Trombone, Movement 1, Allegro, by Leopold Mozart. Both pieces were performed by Bradley White and shared with permission. Now if you know of anyone that may be interested in today's conversation, please share this episode with them. And if you have a minute, please leave us a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts so that others can find us as well. And if you're more of a visual person and want to see our faces, you can watch the video of this interview on our Musicians vs. the World YouTube channel. Musicians vs. the World is a production of Frosted Lens Entertainment in conjunction with Smith Sound Music. It is hosted and edited by me, Christine Smith, and our producer today is Russ Wilkes. If you have enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss out on any future conversations. If you have any questions for us, topics you'd like to hear about, or any helpful advice for other musicians you'd like to share, be sure to reach out on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, or send us an email at info at Thanks so much and have a great day.